Thank you for that song. I'm sure many of us probably were thinking of a bumper sticker that's been around for a while as you're playing that song, or at least the, the message that it contains. N-O, Jesus. N-O, peace. No Jesus, no peace. And then the next line says, K-N-O-W, Jesus. K-N-O-W, peace. Know him, really know him, and you will know peace. Peace is a person. Thanks for that song. Let's have one more prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We want to know him more. We want to love him. More. We want to appreciate him more. And we're thankful that we are offered that privilege. Tonight I pray again that the Holy Spirit would give us the eyeglasses, spiritual eyeglasses and the spiritual hearing aids that we need to uh, grasp a message from your word. We know that uh, spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So we ask for that spirit which you promised to give when two or three are gathered in your name. And these things we pray in your name, Lord Jesus, amen. When I was in seventh grade, we lived in Colorado. And uh, actually, we lived there when I was in fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. But when I was in seventh grade, an interesting experience happened that I've never forgotten. And it sort of serves to illustrate a lead into my presentation for tonight. There was a doctor in our congregation there at Grand Junction, Colorado, Um, and then there was a businessman. Uh, The doctor, his name was Ward. The businessman's name was Johnny. Now, Johnny and Ward had this ongoing... um, I don't know what you'd call it, but it was sort of like a battle of one-upsmanship on who can get the other guy more times, trick him, uh, fool him, pull a joke on him, a prank on him. They were just, they were always playing pranks on each other. It was just, and everybody kind of knew about it because you'd hear about some of the things these guys would do to each other. They were good friends, good friends, but they're always having fun trying to trip the other guy up in some way. Well, um, 4th of July... Johnny and his wife hosted a church um, social at their home. And during the course of that evening, they had fresh strawberry shortcake. Fresh strawberries, fresh shortcake, whipped cream, you know, the whole bit. Well, when they were putting the, the dessert together, back in the kitchen... Johnny substituted shaving cream for whipped cream on, and just really, you know, heaped it up real nice and pretty, little kind of a little, what do you call a little, thank you, a little dollop on the top there, a little curly cue, and it looks so nice. He made sure it didn't smell like lime or anything like that, you know. And then everybody was served their shortcake, and Johnny served. Ward his. Well, you know, it looked great. Everybody was eating. 
Everybody was commenting about how this was so wonderful. They have fresh strawberries here, and they must have shipped them in from somewhere. How'd you get them? And oh, it's just delicious. And the whipped cream is all extra treat. And people are talking. And Dr. Ward, he's <laughs> taking a bite, and he's thinking, "This is terrible." I don't know what these people are talking about, but this is terrible. Well, Johnny's wife was standing by. Johnny made sure of that because, you know, he wanted her to be in proximity to Ward so that Ward would think twice before he would say this was terrible. And that's exactly what happened. Johnny's wife's hanging out there. Johnny's hanging out there. Ward's looking. Everybody else is eating theirs and thanking them for, you know, for, for, for their asking if they could have seconds. And so he ate all of it. <laughs> without saying anything. Because he didn't want to offend, and everybody else was, you know, eating theirs. So he figured, you know, there's just something wrong with my taste buds tonight, so he ate it all. Not too long after that, he excused himself, said that, thought maybe he'd go home a little early tonight. <laughs> Wasn't feeling quite up to snuff, but... Anyway, he went home and he went to bed. <clears throat> he, he woke up about one in the morning, Feeling just terrible. And he called Johnny at one in the morning. Called Johnny's house. And he says, Johnny, man, I, I hate to I hate to call you at one in the morning, but I'm just feeling really bad. And you know, I think it might have been something I ate. You know, he said he said, That strawberry shortcake that you know you served. Was there anything wrong with the whipped cream? <laughs> Johnny said <laughs> Uh, well, yours wasn't whipped cream. Yours was shaving cream. So he said, take two aspirin, call me in the morning. Um, worst scenario, you'll probably just blow some bubbles. I called and I checked it out before I did it. And so it's going to be okay. You're going to be all right. Well, I don't remember what Ward did to get back at Johnny, but <clears throat> that was a pretty good one. And people had a good laugh at Ward's expense. But the point of the, of the illustration is that um, the shortcake looked like something on the outside that it wasn't on the inside. And when something looks like what it's not, that can be a very big problem, especially when we talk about spiritual things. Is it possible, there's an, a book that I remember back when I was in Academy came out, a little paperback, and it was entitled, How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. Anybody here ever hear that book before? Is it possible to be religious without being a Christian? So if you were religious without being a Christian, that would be kind of like that shortcake, wouldn't it? You looked like something that you really weren't on the inside. Right? And if we were looking like something that we really weren't on the inside, we would be in need of some change, wouldn't we? In fact, you could say if you had a church with people who were qualifying for that description, that what they could stand would be a, a good revival experience with God. Right? I want to show you a little passage that I came across not too long ago. This is written in our church journal back in 1887. So I recognize that this is old, 
And so, you know, it may not be relevant anymore. But we'll just look at it. Read it with me out loud, will you? A revival. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm sorry. Here we go. Okay, we'll start again. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. So I told you it was pretty old. So do you think that maybe it doesn't apply any longer? Still applies. Still applies. Well, Jesus had something to say about how important revival was and how important it is for us to be the same on the inside as we are on the outside. And I want to notice something with you from his own book. Um, I'd love to see a book on the... I'd love to see someone write a book on Revelation entitled Jesus in his own words. Wouldn't you love to see Jesus as the heart and core and central message of the entire book. I'd love to see that. And, and uh, it seems like you ought to be able to see him in that book since it's his own book. He wrote it. I mean, he dictated it. It's his own book. It's the most truly his own book of any book in the Bible. Now, the whole Bible, of course, is inspired, but Revelation. Well, I want you to notice, in his own book, these words are in red letters, if you have a red letter edition. Revelation 3, verses 14 and 15. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write these things, says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold, or hot. Okay, so these are Jesus' words to the church at Laodicea. He says, you're not cold, you're not hot. I could wish you were one or the other. Isn't that interesting? God prefers cold people to warm people. Catch that? He prefers cold people to warm people. But he's writing to a church full of warm people. And he says, I wish you were cold or hot. I wish you were cold or hot. Have you ever been cold? This morning, I didn't want to appear to be antisocial. But I ate this morning outside of the awning out here in the sunshine. (laughs) Because when I left Walla Walla, it was 102 degrees. And I didn't put even a long sleeve shirt in my bag, you know. So I thought, I said to Margie, I don't want people to think we're not friendly, but I just can't sit underneath of this awning here. I need to get out in the sunshine. So I sat there and tried to keep from spelling my drink with my shaking. <laughs> <clears throat> Have you ever been cold? 
When you were cold, did you want to stay that way? No. No. Didn't want to stay that way. When you're warm, you're not really thinking about cold or hot. You're just sort of, there you are. But when you're cold, you're wanting to be hot, right? Jesus said, I would prefer that you'd be cold to be warm. Because he knows cold people are more likely to be looking for a change in their lives than warm people are, right? I think we've all heard the story about the frog in the, in the water, the hot water, right? And it's supposed to be true. I haven't tested it. <laughs> I thought that would be a really good one to do in church, you know, an illustration. <laughs> it does just go ahead and talk, and you have the cameras going in on it, you know, and zooming in, and, you know, and, and watch that frog slow down and slow down. But no, no, it wouldn't do it. Um, but you know the illustration. If, you have, if you're not familiar with it, you can put a frog in boiling water and it will hop out. If it's, if it's possible for it to get you know, loose, it will get out of that water fast. But if you put it in cool water and then just gradually bring the temperature up very slowly over a protracted period of time, that frog will just keep swimming around until it dies from the heat without becoming alarmed it won't realize that it's in trouble because it got that way gradually. Jesus said, I would rather you were cold than warm. The truth is, he said, I wish you were one or the other. So he would rather you were be hot than any of them, but he'd rather you were cold than warm. Do you know how God feels? about lukewarm. This is, I'm just going to show it to you. This is Jesus again in red letters, Revelation 3.16, next verse. So then, Jesus says, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Lukewarm people give God the urge to regurge. That's what he's saying. He's saying, some, some, some paraphrases or translations say, uh, because you are lukewarm, it makes me want to spit. Just spit you out of my mouth. Why? Why does he feel that way? He continues. In Revelation 3.17, the next verse, he says, You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You're swimming in the water and it's getting hotter and hotter and you don't realize that you're in deep trouble. You don't even realize it. You think you're okay. You think you don't need anything. Now we understand that the church of Laodicea is a symbol of the church just before Jesus comes. 
up until just before he comes, the church is noted for being Laodicean. Now these verses that we've just looked at so far contain a rebuke to Laodicea. You see that. It's like, Laodicea, you're in trouble. You think you're okay, you're not okay. I wish you were cold over what you are. This is the rebuke. The rebuke to the church at Laodicea. Now, in order to have this problem, in order to be the church of Laodicea, you would have to have more than 50% of your members Laodicean, or it wouldn't be called Laodicean, right? You understand what I'm saying? If it's not the majority of the church, then you wouldn't call the church Laodicean, you'd call it something else. But because it's the majority, it means more than 50%, it's called Laodicean, lukewarm. So the majority of the people in Laodicea, the last day's church, are noted for being lukewarm. These are Jesus' words. Now, here in North America, we have on our church books approximately a million members in North America. So, that would mean that more than 500,000 of those members would have to be lukewarm in order for us to qualify for Laodicean, right? More than half of them. I don't know if you're aware of this, but I got this next statistic from the North American Division office. I called myself, I called them myself and asked. They said out of the one million that we have on the books, less than half of them attend church even once a month. Less than half of them attend church even once a month. But we're not talking about the people who don't attend church. We're talking about people who do attend. So out of the people who do attend, if Jesus' words are true, describing the church the last days just before, up until just before he comes, then of those who attend, there's a lot of warm people. Now, other churches are in the same boat. The Seventh-day Adventist church doesn't have a corner on this. All the churches are in the same boat. Reminds me of LHMS Richards. You know, he, he went to Oakwood College. He was the first white preacher to ever be invited to come and do a week of prayer at Oakwood College. If you don't know, Oakwood College is the Seventh-day Adventist college that is staffed almost entirely and attended almost entirely by African-Americans. Seventh-day Adventist college. 
And they invited Elder H.M.S. Richards to come. And so he stood up at the very first assembly. All the church, all the school and staff are there for the first meeting, week of prayer. He stands up, and the first thing out of his mouth is he says, there'll be no black people in heaven. <laughs> at Oakwood College? <laughs> oh, my word. And the people there in the, in the seats, they looked at one another like, I don't think I just heard that. I... I I, I must have misunderstood what he just said. So then Elder Richard said, let me repeat in case there was any misunderstanding. Let me repeat what I said. There will be no black people in heaven. And now he's looking at each other and they go, I, I did hear him correctly. I can't believe Who brought this guy in to speak to us? Where did he pick him up? And then Elder Richard said, there will be no white people in heaven either. Well, you know, that's kind of cheap comfort. <laughs> Then Elder Richard said, the only people who will be in heaven will be red people, people who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen. Oh, they said, okay, <laughs> amen, bring it on down, come on, okay. You know, and it was okay, they liked him after that. <laughs> but it's cheap comfort, and it's cheap comfort for us to consider that Laodicea is the problem in all of the Christian churches today, not just the Seventh-day Adventist church, all. All of us have the same problem. This is the problem Jesus predicted would characterize the Christian church at the close of earth's history, just prior to his coming. All right, so if this is true, and I believe it is, then the majority of people who attend churches, any denomination are lukewarm. Now, if that's true, then you would expect lukewarm people to be everywhere. You'd expect them to be in church. You'd expect them to be in Sabbath school. You'd expect them to be holding positions in our institutions, teaching, leading, in our conference offices. You'd expect them among our pastors. If that weren't the case, then we wouldn't be called lukewarm. It'd be something else, right? So the majority characterized this way. Now, remember what it said there, verse 16. I'm going to put it up on the screen again. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, you see the faucet there. The next slide is going to show you the, the how we get um, warm water. Uh, a typical house has a faucet. Um, I guess nowadays we have those center ones where you can kind of go back and forth. But not too long ago, uh, not uncommon to see a faucet where it, if you turn the knob, the knob on the left side, you get hot water. Turn that knob on the right side, you get cold. Now, it's, it's always a little bit of a problem if someone's got those crossed. Have you ever, <laughs> ever been trying to take a shower and, you know, you think, well, I need a little bit more of that cold water. Whoo, <laughs> it got hotter. Okay, but the way you get warm water is to combine equal parts of hot and cold, right? You combine hot and cold to get warm. In Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes a group of lukewarm religious 
leaders, and he calls them hypocrites. I'm going to show it to you here. Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The shortcake looks good on the outside, but when you put it in your mouth, you discover it's not what it looks like. He says... You have hot looks, but you have cold works. That's what he's saying to them. You act on the outside. You act like you're on the right team. But inside, you're not really. By the way, where does God look? On the the heart, on the inside. These people he was talking to, these were the religious leaders of the nation. You remember on another occasion he said to them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of what? Of me. And yet you don't come to me that you might have eternal life. Is it possible to be experts in the letter of the word without knowing the author of the word. Yes, it is. And he says, if you know the letter, but you don't know the author, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look okay on the outside. You can make it sound pretty good. You can rattle off those proof texts. You can get all of the theological ducks in a row and show that you're on the winning side of the debate. But if you don't know the author of this book, you miss the whole point. Because we didn't write this book so you could prove people were wrong if they didn't think the way you do. We wrote this book so you get to know me and my dad. That's what Jesus is saying. You search these scriptures, you're looking for eternal life. It's about me, and you're not coming to me. Remember the two on the road to Emmaus? After the resurrection, and Jesus, you read that story again. It says that Jesus showed them all the things in the writings of Moses, in the scriptures, concerning himself. Which is another way of saying, look, let me show you what the real value and the real meaning and the real message of God's word is. It's to introduce you to me. Let me show you me here. And of course, the only word he had for them was the Old Testament at that time. So can Jesus be seen in the Old Testament? Boy, big time. But if you've missed him in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you've missed everything. You've missed everything. And that's what he said to them. Let's not forget about these people. They were tithe payers. They were Sabbath keepers. They were health reformers. They had family worship. 
In fact, they had to hurry home on Friday night from Calvary in order to be back in time for sundown vespers. Jesus said about them, you look good on the outside, but inside you're rotten, you're full of corruption, dead men's bones. I read something interesting about the Titanic. That's sort of a fascinating historical study to do, the Titanic. And one of the things I read that kind of triggered a thought or two in my mind was that the steel that was used in the construction of the Titanic looked good, but there was too much sulfur in the mix that created the steel that was used in the Titanic. Now, I don't know much about, you know, steel and all of that, but I read this, and what they said was, if you have too much sulfur when you're making steel, the steel will be very brittle. So it's kind of like glass instead of like what we think of when we think of steel. If you had a steel bumper and you bumped into something, the bumper bends. But it doesn't shatter. If you had a glass bumper and you bumped into something, it would shatter. Because there was too much sulfur in the steel, when the Titanic hit that iceberg, it shattered. And the water poured in. If the steel had been correct, it would have bent. But it wouldn't have shattered. And we wouldn't have that tragic story. The Titanic looked good on the outside. But what was on the inside was rotten. Lukewarm people go through the motions of being religious. They do the right things for the wrong reasons. Is it possible to do the right thing for the wrong reasons? The Laodicean church that Jesus rebukes, that he says makes him sick, is religious, but it's not spiritual. This is a very important distinction. It's religious, but it's not spiritual. They knew the rules, but they don't know the ruler. They know the law, but they don't know the Lord. They're really big on standards, but they're really low on knowing Jesus. This is the characteristic of Laodicea. They work on keeping the external looking good. But in terms of actually having the connection and the meaningful, ongoing, daily walk with Jesus, fellowshipping with Him for the purpose of becoming better acquainted with Him day by day, through His Word and through prayer and through sharing Him, that's missing. That's missing. And Jesus revealed in the book of Revelation 
what the last church would look like until just before he comes again. Now, unfortunately, there are people who think that the way you get the warm folks hot is to preach what they sometimes refer to as the straight testimony. Cry loud, spare not. Legislate the standards. Work for conformity to the standards. Tell people they got to clean up their act, quit doing this, start doing that, get rid of this, destroy that, become better at this, let go of that. But legislated standards do not change hearts. And in fact, you know what legislated standards do? They rush people out of the church more quickly than they bring them in. They do. Here's another statistic I got from the same source when I called the North American Division. In North America, there are two million ex-Seventh-day Adventists. Two million, twice as many as we have on our book. Two million ex. And here's another interesting thing. If less than half attend of the one million attend church even once a month, then what that means is for every attending Seventh-day Adventist in North America, there are five either non-attending or ex-Seventh-day Adventists in North America. Why did they leave? They were introduced to the rules without being introduced to the ruler. They tried hard to conform and to hold the standard, to live the life that they were expected to live. But if you don't know the ruler, you cannot live that life. Oh, some of us, maybe with a little more backbone, a little more self-discipline, a little more willpower, we can make it look like we're staying out of trouble, but we can't change our hearts. The Bible says we cannot change our hearts. Even if we can change the outward how it looks, we can't change the inward. See, the only way you can have the life of Christ actions is to have the life of Christ within. And if you haven't been introduced to Jesus and you're not in daily contact and communion with him, you won't have his life dwelling in you, even though you might have a lot of information. Back to what he said, you search the scriptures. You think you find eternal life in them. Well, they're about me, and if you don't come to me... You're not going to have life. See, Christianity isn't about what you do. It's about who you know. But who you know will change what you do. you got to get the whole package there. We don't want to simply introduce people into what to do or what not to do. We want to introduce them to Jesus and Jesus will so transform them that they will begin to do or not do according to his good pleasure. Okay, so what I said a moment ago was legislated standards don't change the heart. My dad was this kind of funny story. My dad's a preacher. He's a retired preacher. And when he was um, fairly young in the ministry, I was in elementary school. I can can remember this, actually. Um, Some people in the church that he was pastoring, they they felt like, you know, the deal here is we've got to hold up the standards if we want revival. 
So let's focus on standards. Let's focus on standards. Let's focus on the do's and don'ts. And one of the first things that they they thought we need to focus on was jewelry. Got to get rid of jewelry. Can't wear jewelry if we want to have revival. So my dad, he was um, at potluck one Sabbath. And one of these people who was wanting revival, get rid of the jewelry, sat across from him at potluck. And they said, Pastor, what's that silver thing on your tie? He looked down and he said, well, that's a tie clasp. They said, looks kind of shiny. <laughs> no, looks kind of like jewelry. Well, do, don't we want revival, Pastor? Oh, yeah, revival. Well, man, you know. Tie tack there looks pretty ornate. So, you know, he didn't want to be the one to squelch revival, so he took off his tie jack. Well, next time he was at potluck, he forgot he didn't have that on, and his tie kept dropping into the soup. (laughs) But at least, you know, he wasn't wearing jewelry. But his tie kept getting messed up in the soup. And somehow that didn't seem practical to him. And so he felt he needed to keep his tie in control, but he didn't want to be wearing jewelry, didn't want to ruin the revival experience, you know. And so he found in my mother's drawer in the kit in the bathroom, he found a bobby pin. <laughs> and he's looking at that bobby pin, he's thinking, you know, you know, I think I could slide that bobby pin onto my tie. It works. Not shiny, kind of brown, you know, (laughs) kind of low-key. Nobody's going to say it's ostentatious or ornamentation or anything. So he started wearing bobby pins (laughs) to keep his tie out of the soup. And then my mom, he was going through her drawers one day, and he noticed there are different colors for bobby pins. To match different colors of hair or whatever, you know. And so he began getting different colored bobby pins for the different colored ties. <laughs> kind of match his tie. So one day he's there at the potluck and someone's sitting across from him and said, Pastor, what, what is that? What is that on your tie? He said, Well, that's a bobby pin. They go, Well, I know, but I mean, why are you wearing a bobby pin? Oh, he said, I don't believe in jewelry. <laughs> And he became so proud of his bobby pin because he wasn't wearing jewelry that he began to kind of have a little attitude, you know, a little pious, a little proud attitude about working for revival with those bobby pins. And finally, one day, he concluded that the latter state of that man was worse than the first. And he went out and got a tie tack. Started wearing it again. Legislated standards do not change hearts. Now, I'm not in favor of lowering standards. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not in favor of lowering standards. But I don't want us to confuse Raising standards with creating revival. Revival will never come from raising standards. Revival only comes from knowing Jesus. Only. 
And if we raise standards without raising Jesus higher, we're in trouble. And we'll lose another two million. The problem is, working on externals is the very thing that Laodicea is known for. That's what they're known for, according to the description. Remember, he said, you've got to clean the inside of the cup. That's where the cleaning needs to be, not the outside of the cup. Jesus works his righteousness out of us. Let's look at Matthew 23. This is again Jesus talking. He says, Woe to you Pharisees and you religious leaders, you hypocrites. You are so careful to polish the outside of the cup. But the inside is foul with extortion and greed. Blind Pharisees, first cleanse the inside of the cup and then the whole cup will be clean. All right. So up till now, what we've been looking at is what we're calling the rebuke to Laodicea. Okay? But the good news about Jesus is he never gives us rebuke without giving us counsel. He's always going to give us counsel on what to do about what the rebuke said. So now we're going to look at the counsel. We continue Revelation 3, verse 18. I counsel you. This is Jesus talking now. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Remember, he just said you think you're rich, but you aren't. You think you have need of nothing, but you're not. You think you have lots of clothing. Remember he said that. Look at that. Now he's saying, here's my counsel. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. Get it from me, he says, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. This is his counsel. This is his counsel. Now, to help us just a little bit with the counsel, I want you to see something from, again, from our our church journal from uh, 1894. The counsel of the true witness, the counsel. The counsel of the true witness does not represent those who are lukewarm as in a hopeless case. Good news! Good news! The Laodicean message is full of encouragement. So far we haven't heard it, but we're going there now. The backslidden church may still buy... The gold of faith and love. Let's go back for just a moment. Well, now, what happened? Are we going... Are we... Are, are, okay, we, did we see this one? Okay, okay, right there. Hold that. Okay, now, um, by the way... I want you to know that I'm the one that set the slides up and I asked my wife if she'd click the clicker for me tonight. So she's doing what I set up, but she's not causing these problems. <laughs> I set it up this way. Okay, so now, still, he says, buy the gold of faith. Let's see if there's, did I leave a slide out, Marge? Let's try going forward now one more time and see what it says. Yeah, we may still have the white robe of righteousness of Christ that the shame of our nakedness need not appear. There's hope for Laodicea. The ISAB, the gold, and the white raiment. Did you catch 
The gold was faith and love. Now, where do you get faith and love? From Jesus, right? So you're going to have to be in connection with him to get those things, right? Have you ever heard people talk about trying to grow faith by believing harder? That's not growing faith. That's just power of positive thinking, you know? It's like, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. I'm going to try and believe. I just I choose to believe. That's, that's not faith. That's just humanism. Faith is synonymous with trust, right? If there was somebody who was completely trustworthy, well, is Jesus completely trustworthy? Amen. Okay. Then in order for me to trust him, what am I going to need to do? I'm going to need to get to know him well enough to trust him, right? Does that make sense? The better I know him, the more I trust him. So if I want to grow faith, what is the method? Become better acquainted with Jesus day by day. And the more you learn to know him, the more your faith in him will grow. We're really talking about a relationship with Christ. That's what we're really talking about. When he says, buy from me faith and love, we're talking about a relationship with Jesus that goes on on a daily basis. An effort to become better acquainted with him, morning by morning, day by day. He says, the white raiment, it's the white robe of his righteousness, which is given to people who are in relationship with him. Isn't that wonderful to think about? This robe of Christ's righteousness, this white robe. The Bible talks about these robes that have been dipped in blood and they come out white. Isn't that amazing? Because it's the blood of the Lamb. And then this eye salve, this is the Holy Spirit bringing discernment. We had a woman who wrote... This, this evening in the prayer request, please pray for me that, that I would have, the Holy Spirit would give me this gift of discernment and fill me with the gift that he has. And I appreciated Pastor Bud's prayer and his comments about that. So, the counsel to the church at Laodicea is this. I'm going to summarize it. Jesus is saying, you need my righteousness, which comes through faith, and you need my love, which is needs to be indwelling in your heart, needs to be brought into your heart, and these gifts that I'm talking about are going to be the result of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. That's the counsel to the lukewarm people. That's the counsel. In other words, you need a personal relationship with me if you're ever going to be something other than warm, if you're going to get hot. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, there's something especially interesting about this. When Jesus comes, there will be no such thing as a lukewarm person. No such thing when Jesus comes. Up until shortly before he comes, there's three groups. The hot, the cold, and the lukewarm. But when Jesus comes, there's only hot or cold, righteous or wicked, Wheat or tares, sheep or goats, 
wise or foolish. Just two groups, right? That's what the Bible teaches. So what happens to the middle group? Just before Jesus comes, something happens to the middle group. Which, by the way, is the majority of the Christian churches. Something happens to the membership in the majority of the Christian churches that eliminates the warm. Something happens. Here's what happens. They go hot or cold all over. Ever heard that expression? Something so scared me, you know. The bear jumped out of the, behind the tree and roared and I went hot and cold all over. Just before Jesus comes, the lukewarm go hot or cold all over. They're one or the other. You probably heard that nursery rhyme, there once was a girl who had a curl right in the middle of her forehead. When she was good, she was very, very good. When she was bad, she was horrid. Right? You heard that nursery rhyme. Sometimes you might have even thought you, you were raising that child. <clears throat> Just before Jesus comes, that's going to be the description of who's on earth waiting for him. The hot will be very hot and the cold will be very cold and there'll be no warm at all anymore. No warm. What happens to them? What happens to the warm? What happens is God moves out. He takes the reins and he says, all right, we're going through now. God moves out and when he moves out, he picks up speed. I'd like to propose there's going to come a time in our world's history when Jesus doesn't wait any longer for us to finish the work. We talk about it, hasten the work, finish the work. We talk about it, and I believe we've been given an opportunity and the privilege of hastening his coming. But quite frankly, I suspect that if he was going to depend on us to finish or hasten his coming, he would be waiting forever. I don't know if you're aware of this. This was a startling thing for me to discover recently. The combined converts to Christianity from all of the denominations that are evangelistic in nature is not keeping up with the birth rate in the world. So, so we're not even keeping up with the birth rate. We're in trouble. What's going to happen? We've been given the privilege of hastening his coming. But think about this word hasten. You know, I don't know how far it is from here to Walla Walla, maybe a thousand miles. Let's just say it's a thousand miles to where I live. If I was driving from Walla Walla to Lake Tahoe at 65 miles an hour, I would get here in a certain number of hours. If I drove at 70 miles an hour, I would hasten my arrival. 
right? I would hasten it. But if I had kept driving at 65, I still would have arrived here anyway. But if I go a little faster, I can get here a little sooner. You don't use the word hasten unless there's a point in which he comes regardless of what we do. We could have hastened his coming, but he's coming anyway, whether we hasten it or not. Even if we don't go 70, he's going to get us here at 65. He's coming anyway. I believe we have this opportunity to become more involved but I believe that he has a point fixed. There's a point past which Christ will wait no longer, and I don't believe it's based on the clock. I believe it's based on world conditions. I don't think he's got a time where he says, okay, it's this date. I think it's world conditions. Do you remember, you remember when, Cain, when Israel was trying to go into the promised land? You know? They came one time, but they didn't have faith. They didn't have enough faith. They were turned back because of lack of faith. Remember that? And they went to go out and wander in the wilderness for 40 years. When they came back the second time, had they gotten enough faith? Actually, they hadn't. If you read what Moses says to them before he goes off to die, he says, I've been walking with you for 40 years. You're less faithful now than you were when we started. But they got to go into Canaan. Now, why was that? You study it very carefully. The reason they got to go into Canaan was because the Canaanite nations had filled up their cup of iniquity. God could not let that go on any longer. They had to be destroyed. It created a vacancy, and he let Israel go in. It was conditions among the worldly in Canaan that permitted God to bring Israel on in. Now, I'm not wanting to spend a lot of time um, extracting from that particular thought. It would take a lot more than a sermon to expand on it adequately. But the one point I do want to make is this. I believe there's going to be a group of faithful people. (laughs) They are going to have learned the lessons of faith and trust. But I also believe that the world is going to have filled up its cup of iniquity. And God says, that's it. Ready or not, here I come. I believe we're on the brink of that right now. It is so exciting. You know, uh, Billy Graham said that if God doesn't come soon, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because the world is becoming so wicked. We're reaching a point where God is going to pull out all the stops. Romans 9.28 says this, He will finish the work. And he will cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. He's going to finish the work. He's going to do it. And as God finishes his work, there's going to be a great polarization that takes place and the lukewarm people are going to disappear. They're going to go one way or the other. They're either going to go madly into a relationship with Jesus, madly embracing, madly in love with Jesus. Maybe the word madly is not the right word, but you know what I mean. Or they're going to say, enough of that. I don't have time for that. And they're going to go full bore the other direction. And they're going to embrace the world. Now, I was thinking about something in my lifetime. You know, last night, Pastor Al started out by talking about how his father said, you know, you're, you're not going to get through school before Jesus comes. And, you know, he went through that little thing. In my lifetime, 
I can remember 35 years ago, there were almost no Christian bookstores anywhere. The only place you could find Christian book or material wasn't at ABC. But other than the ABC, it's very hard to find Christian bookstores 35 years ago. 35 years ago, you very rarely ever saw bumper stickers that had anything to do with Christianity. You never saw those little fish insignia? Never saw that kind of stuff 35 years ago. 35 years ago, you would not have found tapes and, and Christian um, merchandise in stores like Walmart. They have all kinds of Bibles. They have the Bible in, on audio CD. I mean, they, you, there are all kinds of stuff like that at Walmart. There's all kinds of other things at Walmart that shouldn't be there. But 35 years ago, the censors for television required that the, the Dick Van Dyke show, Mary Tyler Moore was his on-screen wife, the Dick Van Dyke show. The censors required that Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore slept in twin beds with pajamas buttoned up to their necks and wearing wedding bands. Huh. Would you say things have changed a little bit? Do you know what? I can still remember when I was in seventh grade, a movie came out called The Graduate. I haven't ever have seen it, but I know this much. It was banned from almost every theater in America. Banned from it. And the gist of the plot was that a college young man had an affair with a married woman. It was banned. The average American citizen said, we will not have that kind of filth in our town, not in our theaters, not while we're on watch. No way. And now, the average Christian household watches stuff without even batting an eye in the afternoon on television that we would not have let come into our theaters without being Christians 35 years ago. Would you say that the, pet, the, the pot has been getting warmer? And the frog ought to take note. Someone sent me an, a, a website to check out. It's called, I think it's called worldwatch.com. I think that's it. Anyway, I checked it out. And what it is, is it's, it's not Christian. There's no Christian base to it. It's a group of environmentalists and scientists who are monitoring the conditions of this planet and they are alarmed at what they're looking at. And these guys aren't, they're not proposing anything Christian, nothing like that. They're just showing. And this world clock, what it is, it's like, you know how you have an odometer on your car? It tells you, you know, little, the numbers change as you drive. You can see how far you've gone, a little trip odometer. Well, this website has trip odometers, so to speak, for all kinds of catastrophic stuff, um, illnesses, plagues, wars, death, pollution, environmental issues, AIDS, uh, suicides, cancer, on and on, just stuff. How many people are dying? And the way you can walk on this website, you can click on looking in the last 24 hours. And this, this little, the little odometer is just spinning. You can see the numbers going. How many people have died from AIDS in the last 24 hours? And you can see the number right there. Then you can click on it and say, tell me for the last week. And the number suddenly jumps to be seven times what it was. Or you can say the last month, and then it goes 30 times what it was. Or you can say year to date. 
And the numbers are just overwhelmingly depressing. Well, on that website, they had a spot towards the bottom. They had a link to something in their website which said, what can we do about this? And I thought, well, I'd like to see what they had to say. I was totally amazed at what they said. This is what they said. The scientists and environmentalists, this is what they said. They said, the earth's going down the drain and nothing's going to change it. You can't do anything about it and here's why. This is what they said. They said, the the reason we can't do anything, we can't fix it, is because in order for us to fix what's going wrong with our planet, all of us would have to agree to make the other person's self-interest first over mine. And they said, we are never going to do that. Human nature is too determined to look out for itself. So they said, because we will never look out for anybody but ourselves, we are never going to fix the problems on this planet. We're going down. That's what they said. That's what they said. Would you say that world conditions are starting to look pretty serious? At the same time, world conditions are looking pretty serious. Christianity is becoming more and more. The hot are getting hotter. The cold are getting colder. We're trying to get rid of, you know, prayer in our schools, but people are praying more than ever. I saw a bumper sticker that said, as long as there are tests in public schools, there will be prayer in public schools. (laughs) But friends, this is what I'm really excited about. I hope you catch this. We have conditions in our planet going on right now, a whole slew of them. We're not talking about this thing or this thing. We're talking about a whole convergence of things all coming down at the same time, all at the same time. And at the same time, we're seeing the righteous becoming... You know, I have a a student. I had a student. I used to be a Bible teacher. I had a student who went to a a concert, Michael Card. Anybody here ever heard of Michael Card? Michael Card's a a Christian songwriter who loves Jesus and loves to write about Jesus. He writes books about Jesus. He writes music about Jesus. And if you ever go to his concerts, that's who he talks about more than anything else. In fact, he started one of his concerts not too long ago. He did an opening song that was about Jesus. When he finished the opening song, he said, all of the songs in tonight's concert are going to be about Jesus. There's really nobody else worth singing about. That's what he said. Okay, after a concert he did in the Bay Area, this student of mine, she was down there. She was going to Pacific Union College. You ever, ever heard of that school? Okay. And, and, and she went down to the concert. After the concert, she wanted to go up and talk to Michael Card. So she kind of waited, and he was meeting with people and talking to people, and she went up to Michael Card. This is a very prominent songwriter, if you, if you don't know. He's a very prominent Christian writer, musician and writer. And, and he said to her, he said, so... Uh, are you a student? He said to her. Are you a student? She said, yeah. He said, where do you go to school? And she said, well, I go to a school. It's a private college above the Napa Valley. and You probably never heard of it. And he said, well, that would be Pacific Union College, wouldn't it? He said that to her. She said, yeah, yeah, it is. He said, that's the Seventh-day Adventist school, isn't it? And she said, yeah, it is. He, says, well, you, he said to her, this, she told me this herself. She said, he said, you might be interested to know something. He said... I am convinced that the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Bible. And he said, I and my family observe the seventh day Sabbath. And he said, we don't do any business on that day. We don't. He went down a whole list of things. He said, we worship. We set aside our labor for a living and we worship God 
on the Sabbath. He said, I still go to a Sunday church. He says, there's nothing that says you can't go to church Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. But he says, I believe and know that Saturday is the Sabbath of the Bible, and that's my Sabbath. You go to church on Wednesday and go to prayer meeting. Is that a sin? No. He says, I go to church on Sunday. I teach a Sunday school class. I teach people about Jesus at that class, but I worship on the Sabbath of the seventh day. He says, you might be interested to know, I sit on Steve Green's board of directors, and he does the same thing. Steve Green does the same thing. I believe that the stuff that's going on, the hotter becoming hotter, the colder becoming colder, and lukewarm is disappearing. This is so exciting because what it's telling me is that we have signs of the return of Jesus that are making the sun, moon, and stars look like antiques. Isn't that exciting? I guess not. (laughs) The message of Jesus and his righteousness is rising to the top. And this is going to result in a genuine remnant church. A church which prior to this time had only been doctrinally remnant, but was not experientially remnant. The true remnant church is going to have an experience with Jesus as well as a knowledge of Jesus. Two different things. An experience. They're going to have the right doctrine and they're going to have the right experience. They're going to have head and heart. Not just head. Not just heart. They're going to have head and and heart connected. You remember John 4.23? Jesus said to the woman at the well, the hour is coming, now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. He's not wanting people to just have head knowledge. Just know, got their theological ducks in a row and get them all lined up and have all the right proof texts. That's not what He's looking for. He's looking for people who have head knowledge, yes, and heart experience as well. And that's, that's what's happening. And as that happens, as that happens, and it's happening right now in our churches, and at Seventh-day Adventist as well as other denominations, it's happening. Right? And I could tell you all kinds of stories about that. But it's happening right now. And as that happens, a shaking takes place. A shaking takes place in the church. And the old-timers either leave or they get hot. The lukewarm either leave or they get hot. There's going to be a lot of people who have been external Christians who leave. And there are going to be a lot of backsliders who discover that it's all about Jesus and they come home. They say, I can embrace that. I didn't know that he wanted to do the work in me that I thought I had to produce for him. What causes the shaking? Notice this in early writings, page 70. This is what causes the shaking. The shaking is brought on not by raising the standards. The shaking is brought on by the straight testimony which is called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. Do you remember what the counsel was? It was call an invitation to personal relationship with Jesus. 
faith and love, his righteousness instead of my own, the Holy Spirit giving me discernment and illumination and a fresh glimpse of the love of Jesus, his love for me and increasing my love for him. That's the counsel. That's what causes the shaking. Did you know that? Isn't that amazing? People get shook up when you make Jesus number one. Isn't that strange? Isn't that strange? I pastored the Village Church in, in College Place for seven years. And after a half of my tenure there, my conference president um, received a letter. It was signed by several influential people in my church, people who held leadership positions in my church. And um, they sent me a copy of the letter, too. I guess they wanted to make sure I saw what they sent to the president. And their signatures were there. So you know, I have to give them credit for that. You know, they signed it. They did, it wasn't anonymous. But you know what the letter said? It said to our president, it said, we are getting so weary of having all of the sermons at Village Church always and forever be about Jesus. We want some real Adventist preaching. (laughs) Well, you kind of laugh, but it's sad. The implication that those church leaders were sending to the president was that real Adventist preaching leaves Jesus out somewhere and just champions the standards and lambasts other denominations. That's real Adventist preaching. Well, you know what my president wrote back? He sent me a copy of his letter, too, so I could see what he wrote back. Bless his heart. He said, I can't wait to have this problem in every church in this conference. (laughs) You know what, though? They were shaken up. And I'll tell you why they were shaken up. People who have external goodness get shook when they find out it doesn't make any points with God. They thought they were getting points for their goodness. And when they hear that being good is not what gets you to heaven, knowing Jesus is what gets you to heaven, they get angry. They say, don't tell me all this effort that I put into trying to live right and stay out of trouble isn't worth anything in heaven. But Jesus said it in John 17, 3. Eternal life is based on knowing me and my Father. That's what he said. Just that simple, that plain. And he told a whole bunch of parables about people who were lost at judgment time who were good people. They stay out of trouble and they did all kinds of great things. You remember those parables? The bridesmaids and on, on, on. And he says, in every case, what does he give to them? The reason for not being admitted is, I don't know you. Eternal life is based on knowing Jesus. People who don't know Jesus are either going to get excited about him and knowing him, or they're going to leave the church because they're going to say, I'm sick and tired of hearing about Jesus. I want to hear about standards and do's and don'ts, and don't give me any more of this garbage about Jesus. That's what they're going to They're going to get mad. They're going to leave. They're going to leave. Because they thought they were rich and increased with goods and had need of nothing. And yet they were poor and blind and naked. But they didn't recognize that. The last thing that happens just before Jesus comes is the shaking and the polarization. And it's happening right now. Yes. Amen. People are hearing the knock on the door. 
And they're either opening it and saying, please, Jesus, come in. You know what? Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart. Lord Jesus. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. If anyone hears me calling him and opens the door, I'll come in and I will fellowship with him. That was the counsel to the church at Laodicea. Fellowship with Christ. Opening of the heart. He said, I'll fellowship with him and he with me. When Jesus knocks on my heart's door, I don't want the cash register to be drowning out the sound. I don't want the car engine to be drowning out the sound. I don't want the late night show to be drowning out the sound. I don't want the newscast to be drowning out the sound. I don't want my MP3 player to be drowning out the sound. I don't want my Game Boy to be drowning out the sound. I don't want the school bell to be drowning out the sound. I want to hear his knock. I don't want to be so distracted with the things of the world. I want the things of earth to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Well, you might say, okay, this is good, but if Jesus comes in to my house, I don't have anything to give him. It's like, you know, Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard. When she got there, the cupboard was bare. And to think about letting Jesus in, and I'm such an empty, floundering flop. A few years ago, up in the Pacific Northwest, there were some people on vacation. They were going up the coast. They were from California. They were going up the coast. And they got up into northern Oregon, up there on the coast. They were Seventh-day Adventists. And um, they were thinking how nice it would be to have a really good hot meal. And it was the weekend. And they looked up in the phone book and they found out there was an Adventist church in their town where they were camping, just, just outside that. They were camping up at a campground not too far from that church. And they said, hey, let's go to church and stay for potluck. So they went to the church to stay for potluck. Turns out that day they canceled the potluck. But it was okay. They enjoyed the church service. And they didn't have any food. See, they, they had gotten to their campsite so late in the day on Friday that they didn't have time to go to the store. And so they were pretty much low. All they had was some beans and whatnot. And they, they were thinking it should be nice to get a good meal. Well, after church, they were in the foyer thinking maybe someone will invite us home. There's no potluck. We're visitors. And sure enough, a, a, a friendly woman came up and she said, You're visitors, aren't you? Yeah, we are. What brings you to our church? Well, we're vacationing. We're coming up from California. We're here in this campground. Well, what campground are you staying at? Oh, she said, they said, we, we told her, you know, what campground? Really, she said. Well, isn't that wonderful? She said, um, what's your campsite? They said, well, it's camp whatever, 17. She goes, we'll come for lunch. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
we'll come for lunch and hang out for the afternoon out in nature with you. They said, oh, okay. And they got in the car and they beat it home to their campground. They, got, they climb into their little trailer and they get the soup out, the can of beans, and they, they start adding water to it, you know, and trying to sort of make it go farther. And they're frantically trying to figure out what they can do to make the most of the meager provisions that are left in that camper. And they're thinking maybe we can pull off enough to feed us and that lady and her family. And in the middle of their stirring, suddenly this lady drives in in a station wagon filled with people. And he looks out and then she, he sees three more cars pulling right behind her, filled with people. And he says to his wife, get out some more water, put some more water in the beans. And so they're pouring more water in the beans and they're cutting up the, the lettuce into smaller pieces. And, and, and then he says, wait a minute. As they get out of the cars, they go to their trunks and they start pulling out entrees and salads and fruits and vegetables and breads and desserts. And oh, he said to his wife, throw those beans away. <laughs> Don't even let them see what we have. They hadn't told him that when they came, they were going to bring everything with them. When Jesus comes, he brings everything with him. Isn't that good news? That's good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't want to be warm. We want to be hot. We want to feel the warmth of your fire. We want to gather with the believers throughout the ages around you. We want to hear you when you knock on our heart's door. We don't want to be so distracted with material things, with jobs, with stuff, with our agendas. We don't want to be so distracted with our studies or with our houses, or our lands, or our automobiles, or whatever. We don't want to be so distracted that we don't hear your knock. We want to open the door and say, please, please, do come in. And thank you for bringing everything with you. And for offering it to us as a gift. As a gift that comes in a package wrapped with Jesus. In whose name I pray, amen.